0: Today is July 27th, 2011, and my guest is Brendan O'Donoghue, Director of Zone Sales for Frito-Lay, which is part of PepsiCo. Our topic today is the potato chip and salty snacks generally. Brendan, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Thanks for having me, Russ. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, one of my favorite lines is from Walt, Walter Williams, and he and I discussed it when he was a guest here a few years ago. Walter likes to describe his relationship with his grocery in the following way. I don't tell them when I'm coming, I don't tell them what I want to buy or how much, but if they don't have it when I get there, I fire them. And like Walter, I too like to marvel at how the shelves were always full, and of course longtime listeners know about my interest in the power of emergent order, that there are always bagels at the bagel shop, no one's in charge of that. But while there is something almost magical about the power of markets to provide the goods and services that we want at prices that make us pretty happy, there is stuff going on in the ground level that actually makes that happen. And the other tie-in to this is that uh, a lot of people talk about a Hayekian world, an emergent order world, where there's no planning. Well, there's a ton of planning. There's no planning from the top down, but there's islands of planning in this sea of emergent order. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today is how that planning takes place to make sure that the potato chips that you want to buy uh, are sitting in the grocery store and what happens to the potato along the way. And Brendan uh, has been kind enough to spend some time with you this morning. We we, we had talked about going to an actual processing plant. Uh, it's a little far away. We're not going to do that. I didn't get to do that, but Brendan's going to give us some ideas about what goes on there. But... Uh, Brendan, we just spent maybe an hour and a bit at a local Safeway here in, uh, in Menlo Park, California. And it was an utterly fascinating hour of what goes on behind the scenes in a store. And I have to say, I don't think I'll ever look at a grocery store again the same way. So we'll get to that maybe in the second half of the podcast. So I want to
1: start. I'm hiring right now, Russ. I mean, if oh, you if you need a job, excellent. I'm happy to well, you know retrain you as a
0: uh, <laughs> as a salesman. I think you'd be a, great as a chip guy. <laughs> well, I'm into chips. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm into chips goes back to 1992, I think, is the year, uh, which was when uh, Russ Perot challenged uh, for the presidency, and he one of his really annoying um, themes was that it's better to make computer chips than potato chips. And around that time, uh, Fast Company uh, magazine and business magazine, which was uh, came out as an alternative to uh, other business magazines, took a very different approach. In their first issue, they had a photo essay on how the potato chip gets made, and the theme was how high-tech it was and has become. In our minds, making potato chips is, is people in hair nets peeling potatoes, slicing them up, dropping them in a fryer, putting them in a bag somehow, and uh, selling them. And of course, that is not the modern potato chip world. So what what I want to start with is I want you to give a little bit of the flavor of how a potato arrives at the plant and leaves in a bag. So let's start with as you've told me, it arrives in a train on a in a train, not on a truck.
1: Right. right. So we have we have several plants throughout the country and they're kind of put in, in strategic locations to serve various markets, you know, around them. Um and they, we try and build the plants close to uh, freight lines so that you can you can divert extensions of them off. So you'll see a, a cart of of kind of potatoes show up, and most of the, um, the the potatoes that come in will then get emptied through the bottom of the rail cart into a washer, washing and processing facility, right? So they'll go in, they'll be washed. Then from that's the, a
0: stupid question. Is, no is stupid the rail questions. car uh, covered? It, it, what's the shape of, there are two kinds of rail cars. There's the sliding door kind that yep. the hobo jumps in.
1: Not that kind. And then
0: there's the kind that's open at the top.
1: It has a funnel at the bottom. Okay. So so it's type two. Yeah. If you looked at it, it would, there would be a tarp covering it over or a kind of sealed lid, depending on on the type of cart. And then the bottom, there'd be a valve that you could open up that would allow the potatoes to drain through the bottom. And they drain into a canal, actually a little canal of water that then processes them and spaces them, uh, efficiently. So they get washed in a solution to make sure that they're, they're clean and kind of the water gives them, it inflates them a little bit. Then they go in and get peeled. So. How do they get peeled? So there's a large tumbler, and at one piece of the tumbler, the potato is kind of spinning around uh, on the thing, and there's a slight blade in it. So it falls into that thing, and then it gets spun really quickly, uh, just by kind of the natural inertia that's gone by being, having been put into the tumbler. It gets peeled off, and then it goes through a second peeler as a quality control.
0: How much potato is on the peel?
1: Ten to fifteen percent. So it's good, but it's. Not great. It takes it takes away a certain amount of yield that you'll get right. in the chips that come out of right. the other end. Do you guys work at making that better? Yes, all the time, so there's definitely um, we have scientists that, that come in and look at the supply chain itself and how do you reduce mass now there's kind of two ways that you can do that. The first way would be to invent a brand of potato chips that uses you know the peel, and some people are interested in that, so that would be one way of doing it. The other way is how do you redu- and constantly reduce the amount that you cut off right. so they experiment with different lines on the technology uh, to see, hey, what does it taste like if we cut less off, what if we taste like if it comes more off in Dallas, they have a separate testing facility where they do a lot of these kind of things. But in our plant, not a lot of testing goes Understood. along sure. there. So they have two different facilities.
0: The plant's got the cutting edge. Yep. Whatever,
1: bad phrase. Literally, right.
0: <laughs> so, so the um, uh, what do you do with the peel?
1: So in the Modesto plant, uh, the peel will then be recirculated to a biomass boiler. So our CEO has kind of stated that we want to have zero carbon footprint by, you know, a certain year in the future. So all of the kind of waste products, you know, we want to figure out how to be environmentally sustainable by using them to fuel the other operations that go on in the plant. So that plant has both solar power capability and a biomass boiler that will then be used to either power the local fleet that are around there as they reduce that and extract the the caloric energy from it, um, or to power other aspects of the line.
0: The alternative is to throw it away. Which or you, sell it as feed, maybe Which or, you
1: can which you can do, yep.
0: Do you know anything about whether the Desire to have a zero carbon footprint is profitable in that example.
1: Um, so Frito Lay has experimented with different places in our value chain that that uh, it can be profitable. It is most profitable at the plant level. We have a DC up in Rochester, which I know you spent some some time up there. DC is a distribution distribution center. center. Sorry, Yep. Brandon has some acronyms and abbreviations, and I will
0: occasionally. It's the nature of the business. I will yep. occasionally ask him to. Spell them out. Go ahead.
1: To, yeah, to disaggregate the jargon. So, yeah, uh, yeah so at one of these distribution centers up in Rochester, it is kind of zero, zero footprint up there. It's amazing. All of the light is natural coming in, solar-powered, um, you know, wild grasses that are over in and around uh, the place. That was... What are the wild grasses? Uh, they, they're they used to kind of hold the land, the land together uh, that are around there so that, that you don't have to do lawn mowing or okay. anything like that because lawn mowers are actually one of the, yeah, the sure. you know, most... Not not good for the environment. Effectively. So, so, although but, they but, reduce ticks, which is why we have to use them, <laughs> which produces ticks. Re, re, mowing your lawn reduces oh, the amount oh, of oh, ticks. Reduces ticks because okay, yeah. you have to do
0: something else for the ticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's uh, economics. There's always something else. Um, but the, 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 the I'm just curious. The potato peeling, using that for fuel, is, is that a financially uh, profitable thing? Do you know? So
1: yeah, whenever you do these kind of experimentations with stuff, uh, eventually you get to a point where the where the cost. Uh, pays for itself, right? And we've gotten very, very close with Modesto. So with Modesto, it doesn't pay for itself alone. Augmented with the solar power stuff and the tax advantages of having solar-powered system that government credits, it does make that profitable. So okay. Modesto is a very profitable plan. Okay. So the potato peeled. Mm-hmm. Now
0: what? So the potato is now. It's got a lot of friends, by it, the way. It, it, it's not alone. It was yeah, in it's the not tumbler. alone. It's the a tumble. whole rail is it alone car. Alone in the tumbler?
1: It, no, it's not yeah. alone in the tumbler. There's, there's, a there's lot just of them. there's bunches of them going okay. going through this kind of pipe. That's if you put yeah.
0: How does how does the machine notice? Throw it out of the tumbler. How does it know it's peeled?
1: So the blade is actually on a place so that it can only get friction uh, against the blade based on what the skin feels like. As soon as that happens and its its radius is reduced far enough, it gets spat out through the other side. Okay, and it's kind of weird to watch because you're looking at it and you're like, "How is this thing even working?" But it, you know, the machine is calibrated to certain to make it happen.
0: And I assume, by the way, one of the things we've talked about, you know, many times on here is. How many people are involved in the productivity of the people mm-hmm. that are involved? Mm-hmm. So far, there's not a lot of human effort.
1: So you have someone who's kind of opening the doors for the rail car, releasing the valve right. uh, of the rail car to have it feed into. But it to, goes to whole, the, stuff. the rest of that's all automated. And now it's the all canal automated.
0: the washing, yep. but you healing, have someone
1: monitoring to make
0: sure it doesn't break down. Yep. Exactly. So the tater comes out of
1: the. Peeler. Comes and out we'll, the peeler now, right? So now it's going to get uh, pushed through like the slicer. So yep. it'll it'll get sliced up into uh, a the size that, that it's going to have, then it'll get... How many slices in a potato? So, I mean, if you look at a bag of Lay's, like, out in the store, it'll show you. And there's actually about eight, eight or nine slices that you can kind of get out of it. Now, they shrink. Eight to or, the, or
0: nine slices out of one potato? Uh, potato, yeah. They're so thin.
1: They're so, yeah, they're thin, right? Because the, only
0: eight or nine? I thought you water get 30.
1: Because yeah, the water weight on the, the potato has to get shrunk. So as it goes through the baking, uh, you know, frying process, uh, that water weight gets reduced, then, which is the next step, so... But time out. I, I got a simpler question. It co-
0: it's been peeled. It comes out of the tumbler. Mm-hmm. How big is it? Is it the size of a golf ball, a baseball, a grapefruit? I mean, a potato. But Be- baseball size, that's okay. A good, so it's good, been good, good it's size. smaller and it's more oblong.
1: You know, correct? Yeah.
0: Okay. Carry on. Okay. So it comes
1: out. It gets sliced. Gets sliced. Then um, after it gets sliced, it's going to go through and get and get go through the baking process. Now this is a bigger tumbler that it, it goes through, it gets dipped in the oil that it's going to take, goes through the line, it gets baked through, it spends its time in the kind of baking oven as it moves simultaneously. So How
0: fast is it going at this point?
1: At this point, I know that the, the conveyor system gets up to between 45 and 60 miles an hour at the end of the chain, at the quality control stage. At the beginning of the chain, it's going a little bit slower, maybe 15 to 20 um, okay. over there. It's, it's been a little over. while since I've been yeah. been over the plant. You That's know. All right it's, a,
0: it's an approximation. But it, it's moving fairly quickly while it's being baked. Mm-hmm. And it emerges. And, of course, some of the, these potatoes, seem, sometimes two get stuck together.
1: Yep, get stuck together. That's why there's this big kind of tumbler about, you know you know, 30, 40 feet in, in diameter that they then go in where, uh, that now you have the slices of potato and they're still, they're still relatively floppy at this point in time. They then go through and they they have been cooked, but they don't have the ability to retain the flavoring that you're going to put on them. So from here, a slight coating, a a, a sprayer will come on and very thin film of oil will be put on the potato chip, right? So that's kind of, as it's come out there, then you have your salt sprayer that'll put in a very, very small amount of salt, and then it goes to quality control.
0: Where's the flavor come in?
1: So for a Lay's, baked potato, for a Lay's potato chip, there's only three ingredients. There's the uh, potato, salt, and oil. oil. And for a flavored mesquite? For a fl- yeah, to any of those flavors, you'd have a secondary or tertiary sprayer that would happen after that so that the primary kind of thing that's, that's cooking it onto the thing happens simultaneously with the cooking and spraying for that other seasoning. And that's how you augment the line. So there'd be 20 of these lines running simultaneously for all the different products that they have a certain scale of sales for. And when they know that they need to produce X bags of something and say, we'll dedicate this line to Lay's like, classic stuff, this line to Doritos, this line to Tostitos. And, you know, they all have the same basic flow in the, in the manufacturing chain, just slightly different depending on the seasoning and where it needs to go. Because some seasonings need to be, be applied earlier in the baking process some okay. later to, to, to make it have the right texture and consistency. So
0: so how do they get the seasoning on both sides?
1: So because it's in because a... Because it
0: could be like a toll road, like the bridge. Uh, you only do the toll on one side. Because, like, my mouth, you could just flavor the top, right? Yeah. And my mouth, I don't know if we would know the difference. Uh, you, yeah, you definitely
1: know the you difference. You probably would. You yeah. absolutely would. Yeah. So um, when it goes through that tumbler, the tumbler has a kind of spray on the inside that sprays out as well as on the other side that sprays in.
0: So the, the flavoring, uh-huh. or the salt... Mm-hmm is being applied while they're s- rotating around? While the, in- while the thing
1: is rotating in space. And, and, and it looks like almost like a, a washing machine that's been um, canted 90 degrees to the right where the yeah. tumbler is kind of moving but, forward. And the tumbler has a little impeller on it, a blade that kind of moves moves the things through. But
0: are the chips... Flying around, or are they pressed up against
1: the sides? So they, they, a little bit of both, they're not like flying around like in an Literally. air vortex or something, but they're pretty close to the side and they're turning. And because they haven't been fully baked yet, they're still floppy, so they're not going to get broken. Because one of the things that for our quality control procedures is we want everybody to have a, full a chip. full-size chip yeah. when, it, when it comes up.
0: Okay, now we get to the, you know, I don't know if anybody else is enjoying this as much as I am, but you know, this I, I think this is one of the
1: coolest things in the world, which is... But the salt cutting, I don't know, yeah. so so yeah, so it, depending on the amount of salt, like if you're doing a lightly salted chip, uh, before the salt gets kind of added to it, they'd have a laser beam that would cut the salt crystals in half, that would then, you know attach them to the to the potato chip after that because so low sodium is a priority for the American consumer so in order to retain the flavorness of of the chip you your the way your tongue responds is through surface area of the salt crystal so they have a technology now that cuts the salt applies a thing similar similar uh, taste but far less sodium when you say cuts the salt literally it literally salt. literally it's cuts the, laser the salt beam? you have the laser beam
0: how do they do that i, I know. Um, let me guess you take each grain, each grain of salt. You hold it up. Somebody holds it, and the laser when it splits in half, they drop the two. Ha- now, how do they do that?
1: So, yeah, that that might actually be a little bit beyond my competence okay, we'll to it say off. how that's It's but, all right. Yeah. My question,
0: two questions about that, and we're, we're going to get to the what I think is the, the the thing I really love, which is the quality control. But the on the salt uh, cutting is that a, that's a new phenomenon, obviously. Yeah, past but, eight to ten years, and you didn't advertise that. We did advertise that you did. Yep. So what did you say?
1: Uh, they said that hey, new, new salt, uh, less lightly but, salted chips. But it doesn't say low sodium or less sodium or it does. It, yeah. Today it does. So yeah, if you the, look at a bag, a, it's a light blue bag, and it'll say the. But That's a the, separate the, one, but a classic lays. A classic lays, yeah, has has we haven't advertised it on the classic. But it lays. has fewer that less salt still, than ten still years same. ago. That one has. We've slowly reduced the time, but that one hasn't. The recipe of that hasn't changed enough to really have truth in advertising on that I, stuff. I so the, the lightly salted stuff, I find is very hard to distinguish between the... Now, uh, that's caused some problems because some people, when they buy the lightly salted stuff, they don't want to taste salt. They expect
0: it to... So, they right, feel like you're, it's not truth in advertising. It's not truth, because but you, it right? is truth
1: in advertising. We've just changed the name So we, you always have to manage you know the, the perception of stuff as you do it. So we probably need a new... You know, a new way of conveying that message to the consumer: no salt versus stuff, and, and we're we're starting to do that.
0: That's cool. Okay, so here's the the most amazing part of the process to me, which is uh, I'm always interested in in quality control. So I've you rarely, maybe never, very rarely at least, get a chip that has a big glunk of of mesquite flavor or is bare. It didn't get because I'm sure it happens. That chip yep. goes through the line and it just doesn't get sprayed. And you don't want to examine them one at a time. Mm-hmm. That's too expensive. Uh, one of the other lessons that is clear about modern manufacturing is speed matters a lot because speed's going to determine your volume of your plant, which is going to determine your output, which is going to determine your productivity and your profits. And So you, you, you want to be able to process this stuff quickly. So you're not going to stop and say, does that look right? Eh. It's going to be moving along. So how, do, how does the... Product in the bag have the quality uniformity. You also have a cooking issue. I would assume some chips get burned, some are a little bit raw. How how do you keep that from happening?
1: Yeah, so just periodically, um, you know, we'll run investigations and studies of what piece of our manufacturing line is the bottleneck, right? And oftentimes when you do these studies, um, you find that there are better ways of doing stuff. And the the, at the time that this technology that I'm going to talk about was created, that was the bottleneck of, of the whole manufacturing process. It is now no longer the bottleneck. It's one of the fastest parts of, of, the, of that chain. And what happens is, is it comes out as it, as it, as the potatoes make their way out of that tumbler where the, um, where the, the, the heat, the temperature of, of the of the tumbler is hotter. That's where they get that they get the kind of crispiness they get, and then they get funneled into a little bit of a sifter, and then they come out and get put onto a conveyor belt. That conveyor belt's moving between forty five and sixty miles an hour at that point. That's um, fast. That's fast, if, right? If you saw that, you would note it. You wouldn't, the, you wouldn't want to reach in and grab. They're right. flying. Yeah, they're they're moving real quick. Um, They then proceed to a a photography station where where overhead there is a picture that gets taken of a of a section of the conveyor belt. And it's all measured beforehand so the, the machine and, and photography equipment know every kind of piece of, of what the conveyor belt looks like. So it then maps um, where, where the various chips are on there. And then they undergo a, a quality control algorithm. So they go through and say, hey, this chip is within tolerances of what it, sh- what it should look like. And from that, there's so a... So there's size... Cooked, size, how
0: cooked it is and whether it's got the right on flight Those Texture,
1: you know, uh, s- s- shape. So if they're kind of overly curled on themselves or something like that, there are different tolerances for, for different kinds of things. You can, you can change it. You know, people could, our manufacturing folks could go in there and say, hey, we want to produce chips that look a little bit more like this. Get rid of all the other ones. And that would just be a matter of sifting, right? Because we produce enough chips that, that you could create, yeah. like, you know, different textures that, that, that come out of there. Same thing with, like, a Tostito or something like that to get the scoop F- the scoop shape, you know, it goes through a little press where it prints the, the thing and, and then it comes through. Now there's a gap in the, um, two, con- in a conveyor belt. As it goes over that gap, there's a, the chip, then the chip there's, it will literally jump the gap is it's moving because it's going sixty miles an hour. Is, uh, has enough speed, and the wind resistance on the chip isn't. Can you imagine they're all sitting enough? there
0: as they're going along, they're, and they see that coming? They're thinking, "Think we're going to make it?" But they've heard from their parents and grandparents that, "Yeah, you always make it," but actually, not all of them do.
1: Right? Not all of them do, right? So, oh, so, so on the other side, there is um, a grid of air air pressure pumps. That will then squirt Not on the other side, in, in between, in the gap, in well, the gap. literally the gap. over the gap. So as they're jumping this gap up above, is this is this little thing you'll hear you'll hear noises going. Psst. And what that jet of air is doing is it's pushing, uh, as they jump through the air, the, the non-quality chip off of the line to fall into a collection bin so that those can be put in the biomass boiler later. The ones that make it over the gap, then those will proceed to a station where they're collected, where the, they actually go into the bag. So a film is then fed into it. So if you wanted to get a film of Doritos or, you know, whatever it is, the, the particular type of flavoring that you'd have, you'd feed that film into the, into the machine that would come out the a a specified quantity that is weighed the same every time comes up gently lifts the chips up slides them into the bag the bag gets vacuum sealed
0: yeah we gotta stop here we got we got like, we got lost uh, but first I have just to say I feel like Don Knotts I forget what episode it was at an Andy Griffith's show where he says go on I mean really it's a puff of air that. How does it know which chip to blow blow off the line? Yeah.
1: So when it's taken, that
0: technology is unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty, so it's, it's pretty crazy. Because it's, it's sixty miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So the the photograph is taken between the time the photograph is taken and the and the chip is recognized as eh, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. The puff of air has to blow the right chip. Yep. How much? First of all, how much time is there?
1: I mean, the the, the line itself is no more than like I don't know at that point. 15 yards, 20 yards long. So where it's right coming out, the picture gets taken of where the chips have fallen on the, on the belt. Uh, it then looks at it, knows where they are. So all you have to do is, if you have a, a grid effectively, it says, hey, blow air on grid A4, right? And right. A4 gets the little puff of air. A has to A4, be timed A2, time correctly. It's, be like timed correctly. A, yeah. it's like
0: shooting a machine gun through a spinning propeller and not <laughs> hitting, hitting your
1: own guy. <laughs> yeah. That technology works too, you know. Uh, yeah, but so. that's amazing.
0: Yeah, Well, somebody <laughs> had to think of that, and somebody had to create the... It sort of, doesn't seem like a trivial... Programming challenge.
1: No, but when you look at the amount of people that we were then able to... So before, the quality control procedure was having people look at a five-mile-an-hour moving line and literally handpick... Stuff, off. so that yeah. that that yeah, take the not the people, the no, no, uh, the, the potato the chips. chips yeah. So they would pick off the things that didn't go according to a list of of you know quality control stuff. So and as
0: you told me, there's a video we'll put up of Lucille Ball Lucille doing, Ball, yeah, which doing which some chocolate. Yeah, Many people have seen it's a classic, but, but that's was it, she falls behind. And she falls behind the, uh, which, the is, line keep, which I'm sure hap-
1: well, that's why it was the big bottleneck, right? right? So and now it's no longer part of the bottleneck. So um, they you know when you get the. Uh, the all those people who no longer have to do like that kind of quality you can reinvest them in, in other places uh throughout throughout the organization.
0: And what for example
1: Uh for example like now you so can You've told me that that
0: some of these savings in manufacturing per, you know personnel free up f- money to go create jobs elsewhere in the organization. Right. And
1: oftentimes, I mean, that's what causes kind of a, in your tooth to tail, military uses a tooth to tail ratio to figure out how many headquarters personnel that you have versus field personnel. And I think organizations like PepsiCo look at that as well. But oftentimes, those people kind of end up getting, not those exact people. people,
0: but, but the The headcount, right?
1: Yeah, get reinvested into the into creating intellectual capital within the company, or reinvesting in your human capital. So the people that are tweaking the algorithms, or looking at this stuff, or or running projects of saying, "Hey, the bottleneck of our manufacturing process is no (coughs) longer the quality control step; it is actually the coming in from the rail car step." We can dedicate a few folks to kind of looking at that, and that's a you know, a high-value-add kind of thing, as well as augmenting that with hiring outside consultants to come in to get their opinion and, and of course, that kind of thing, who are yeah. manufacturing specialists. Versus people who got to build the optical scanners. And, yep, yep. But one of the things we talked about briefly before, which
0: I find, which I find uh, so interesting, is that these kind of improvements in technology, uh, everyone just sort of assumes, well, it's always good to replace a worker with a machine. Of course, that's not true, because it depends on the, price of the machine, mm-hmm. and it depends on what the workers' salaries are and benefits and compensation. So in this particular case, uh, there probably was a point in time where that technology might have been technologically viable, but not economically, financially viable. Then it becomes a point in time where it is financially viable. And one of the things that thinking about it made me realize when we talked about this before off the air is that... The scalability of technology is so extraordinary. So, you know, if, if I decide, if my facility, first of all, that facility, that, that technology would never be worthwhile in a plant that was making, you know, 50 bags of chips a day. You just do it by hand. And this goes back to Adam Smith's division of labor is limited by the extent of the market mm-hmm. and, worth, and how worthwhile it is to put technology in. So, in a small plant, the owner of the plant's slicing the potatoes, washing them. And peeling them and baking them, and, and that's how potato chips get made. When you get to a point where uh, you are, are producing potato chips for the United States in a fairly limited number of facilities, any one facility is enormous. Right. So one of the things, you get a credible economies of scale. So that scanner, which isn't viable in a small operation... Becomes viable in a large operation, and then the savings get even bigger if you can expand the operation the scale for whatever reason. And so, I think it's an incredibly important lesson for how technology cuts costs out of the process of production. Um, it just—it's a beautiful example of of, uh, of how that, that scalability. You make you make the conveyor belt twice as wide because you're maybe processing more chips. It's easy to make the scanner read. Twice as wide. It, it, it might, but you couldn't have people plucking twice as it's wide. Twice as wide. because Their arms aren't long enough. So you'd have to have two lines and people stand in the middle. And so just there's all kinds of unnoticed, I think, technological advantages to to capital when you can do that. And obviously it lowers the costs and... Eventually, not always, not 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 every time, but but, when it does work, it works.
1: But then you get to reinvest, you know, so those people that were picking on that stuff, you mentioned the word in this case. Well, then the the bags of chips go into cases. Now we can devote, that's a potential bottleneck for us, and they've looked at stuff. Now we can devote more people to looking at, from that used to pick stuff off there, to look at how the chips are actually getting loaded by a robotic arm into the cases of stuff and then folding up stuff. So more of our people have moved to the next bottleneck. So as you look at, at the manufacturing process over time, you know, it, it starts to get better and better and better where you can concentrate more and more of your res- your human capital resources on the potential problem. And you don't have to think about the other parts of yeah, the supply chain. And that's a quote I think you have from Alfred North Whitehead or you yeah, said, you know, right. that's great for us when we don't have to think about a part Correct. of the machine. Yeah. We can start really thinking about the Something bottleneck that's and reducing that. Yeah. That. that
0: we haven't, that we haven't solved yet. So um, one of the things that you just mentioned, and let's go back now to the process. So the bad chips get pushed down. Uh, They don't get put in the bag. So when you open your bag of Lay's or Doritos, you'll notice that there aren't any black ones. There aren't any bare, bald, white ones. There's chips of a pretty similar size. Uh, They're all natural.
1: So this is this is the piece. People look at the chip in the end. And they said, "Oh, they did something to this. To there's a you know whatever it is because we've reduced all of the thing, the imperfections out of it. So the kind of weird consumer you know behavior that comes out of this is oh, this is a synthetic product, which it isn't.
0: As I told my brother when I was, I was talking to my brother last night, I said I was going to interview you, and and uh, I said, you know, it learns. I already learned some incredible things about uh, how the potatoes come into the plant. He goes. You mean they use potatoes, right? It's cheap shot, but that he, he was joking because it does seem to be a rather transformed product. But it is a, in some circumstances, potato
1: oil salt, salt, and yeah. that's it. And, and and there are competitors like this is. I gave you the analogy of like Guinness brewing, right? Oh yeah, tell me, me that story. Ago. Tell us that so story. So back in you know when Guinness was getting invented, um, that it was actually a batch of burned beer, and it was it didn't pass the quality control check. From um, the the testers at the time over there, so they threw it out. Uh, but the enterprising doorman at the back of the St. James Gate Brewery said, "Hey, I can just sell this to some folks that can't afford normal beer." So, they went and then, and then sold that burned beer to people and found out that all of a sudden there's a demand for this burnt beer. Cheap and, at the time, chi- at cheap. The time, cheap. Yeah. Now, Guinness Command's a premium, as yeah. does there are, we have competitors out there that actually manufacture burned chips to people. So, right. it's like what we would consider an ineffectual part of their supply chain. They've actually figured out how to say, hey, we don't need a quality control check. We can, there's a demand for people that want burned stuff. So, you know, we can go sell it. Sometime,
0: and sometimes that's an animal. That's eating at his feed. Sometimes a mm-hmm. human being who is eating at his feed, but who happens to like that flavor, and sometimes it's being recycled as biomass fuel. Yep. So that's very cool. Um, so the you use the word film, which is not the what normally we would think of as the you were describing the bagging process. So that you've got two things going on. You've got a a chip that's ready to be mm-hmm. put in a bag. And now you've got to really make the bag and yep. the bag has to be uh, printed with all the the first of all the right obviously the right yep. labeling and bo- and flavor and all that yep. the right size etc
1: how is the bag how's the bag made So the bag goes through a kind of tri-level and You said fi- it's made out of It's we call film. It film, you know, and it's all and and the reason you can't really call it, it's not really a plastic uh it's a it's a plastic derivative I, I guess you would say because you want to have certain properties that just a normal bag is going to have you want it to be partially air air sealable because that preserves freshness and for us uh, having a chip that tastes really fresh is super important to both us and our, our consumers right so that's why we use a very special film if you actually feel our bag it, it, it has a very very particular feel because it' it's, it's a preserve it preserves the uh, the vacuum seal preserves that piece so uh, that's the interior piece of the bag then on the exterior there's kind of a printing adhesive that goes on and then there's the actual really thin um, kind of shiny film that gets put on the outside of it where all the images are of the Dorito or, uh, the lay or whatever it is. So you'll see all the, the high finish glossy kind of cover. Now, alternatively, you can, you can have your, your film have a kind of plastic window. So some bags have a window in right. them. For and, sure. you know, for us, that's a, like, whenever you look at it's, it's much more easy for a company to manufacture film without any window. For us, we want to show you what some of our products look like on the inside. So that
0: you're reassured that it's not a this bunch is, of, little it's crumbs. not a bunch of, yeah, yeah.
1: crumbs are destroyed now. Sunlight has a particular effect on different types of things. So, for corn products, it's it's you know it's better to show that piece because they tend to not degrade as fast. Because light has an effect on the product as well. So, uh, so for certain products, we can we can put in the window without reducing quality. With other ones, you don't want to do that. But you see in the corn products, uh, Tostitos, for example, a window you can go in and see that the chips are, are you know wh- what they are uh, what you're expecting. So, how, how does how the way I would do
0: it obviously not the right way, I would make a bag, open it, put the chips in, and seal it. That's right. not what happens. So what, what actually happens? The
1: bag actually gets made kind of around, around the, chi- the chip. Around the product. Yeah, so that stops them from breaking. If our supply chain is working well, uh, you will have at most two people touching your bag of chips by the time it leaves the plant to the time it ends up on the shelf in your store. Two people. and how? And what are they doing? So the first person is the person that maybe... Putting, if the robot arm, you know, kind of isn't working perfectly, they're, they're actually lifting up the bags, and I showed you kind of our technique for lifting that, and putting it into a case, so it gets into the case. From that case, it then goes to our distribution center, which then makes it onto a truck that goes to a store. That case doesn't get opened by anyone other than our route sales representative, RSR. Who is trained in how to handle the bag, and then he merchandised that on the shelf in a particular way to make sure that breakage isn't occurring. Right, so that's right. why we don't like to. We have a lo- we have an army of folks, and they're specialists in handling the, uh, the 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 product so it doesn't get broken. If we just let left that to you know your local retailer, they'd be just throwing bags little up little... with with fists and breaking chips. and then might little... The consumer and be upset.
0: Yeah, which means they probably wouldn't be that interested in doing it, but they might be a little less careful than you'd like. Right. So, for your reputation. Um, that, that, um, one of your plants, roughly how many potatoes go through there in a year, or how many bags of chips?
1: So, yeah, I think you asked, we had hundreds of millions of bags of chips kind of come out of there, um, 100 million cases. Cases. Uh, cases. Now, each case can c- contain between, for a bigger bag, like a family size bag, four cases would fit, four bags would fit in a case up to um, single value line, which is like the, the quarter size or to 33 cent size bags. Those would have up to 50 in a case. So, so it's
0: billions of bags yeah, of chips come off a year, which is uh, tens of billions of potatoes coming through there. And that's just one.
1: Yep. Now that, my, the operations people are going to, you know, go crazy at me if I, get, they, they like exact numbers, so I'm going to stay a little bit vague on, on that piece. I understand.
0: So the, but, but the point I want to emphasize is that that world has changed as has many, many manufacturing processes. The scope has changed dramatically over the last 50 years. So we have talked about this before, but so I don't know if you know this, but 50 years ago, a town had its own potato chip factory. And one of the reasons that was true is that you couldn't really ship them very far. Uh, So to me, one of the great revolutions of snack food, and it's emblematic of what's happened really throughout the whole manufacturing process in America, snack food is just an example, is that economies of scale have been unleashed. I've talked about it, uh, I think, on the air. It's certainly in my books about the egg business, how you used to have an egg... Processing plant was a like farmer in the backyard tossing feed out to his chickens, and he went and looked and see if they laid any eggs the night before. To a world today, where one processing plant with two or maybe a handful of employees, typically two, who are really only just making sure that nothing breaks, are processing a you know a billion a billion eggs. Uh, the pencil facility I've toured is making over a billion pencils a year. So you're producing, you know, billion and plus bags of potato chips, but that wasn't true fifty years ago. Right. So what changed? Uh what was I have my own theory. I want to hear you my theory might be wrong. I you probably know. So what changed?
1: So I guess your question is is what changed about the scalability of yeah. our plants and transportation? So in order yeah. to, to get that? Well, one, um, as, you, as we t- talked about the lines that we have, they became significantly more efficient. So as, as you went through and we kind of had studies done on each aspect of the line... All of a sudden you could you could grow it in a scalable fashion that it could pr- literally produce more now coming out and having it produce you run into problems with how quickly you can actually ship product to places without having it taste stale right because Correct. all food is, is a perishable product especially when you use natural ingredients. The film reduced the amount of staling that occurred there so by the using the nature of the, the bag, nature of the it bag. used to be made out of paper out of really? paper right yeah. so you buy a, a bag of chips or you might even have the store make you the bag of chips right yeah. there and then a day later it's gone stale so the technology of the actual film to preserve freshness is is significant Huge improvement. um on on top of that uh the film's kind of interesting because you can't actually take it to altitude so certain places we have to have plants uh, like the Rockies are hard to transport via ground over because the bag will pop the pressure inside of the yeah, bag yeah yeah and yeah if you've ever
0: traveled to altitude with snacks, you'll see this happen.
1: You'll see the bag kind of inflates, you know, so, so then we figured out how to kind of overcome those, those difficulties by keeping the right partial pressures inside of the bag, et cetera. Um, but then you look at the, at the technology of actually the shipping industry, um, or the, the transportation industry, um, getting the right loads coded and optimizing the algorithms for how you cube out your lobes, loads was a, so the cube out, I assume means so you don't, waste space in the vehicle. And it was an incorrect correct. It was an information technology gap. So before you would set up your line, you'd send something out there and you might have a load going out that was partially filled because of, of a non-optimal supply chain. Now you can know when I get X amount of potatoes into the thing, it's going to make sure that I cube out my load at this size, sending a load on a tractor trailer that's fully cubed pays itself off to transport it from Killingly, Connecticut to California for this very specific type of flavored chip. So now I can expand a uh, snack portfolio by having an economy of scale in the Northeast for manufacturing this one product that's going to go everywhere while at the same time having local products that are produced everywhere in all those plants. Like all of our plants kind of produce the same baseline level of stuff, but then you can shift around in, in space to meet demand to be demand.
0: So the other thing I've always thought was important and correct me if I'm wrong is the vacuum ceiling yeah. because without that, We've got a much bigger breakage problem. I assume that one of the advantages of vacuum sealing is to protect the chip on on the tra- in transit.
1: So that was the primary reason. It had a that's exactly right, and it had a secondary order of effects, which is hey, now all of a sudden you preserve the freshness of the chip significantly longer as long as the bag doesn't get opened. So now all of a sudden you can have a six week code date on, on the chip to make it last. Uh, now actually the, the, if you, if you were to buy a bag of potato chips from either myself or or a competitor, um, you, you'd see that a lot of the, the competitor's bags have longer code dates on them. We consider it, consider it a, a competitive advantage to kind of have shorter code dates to be able to say, hey, uh, you know, our chips are fresher and we will, we will take them voluntarily off the shelves if they're not within Within those code tolerances, that's about a, six weeks.
0: That's a tribute, of course, to your supply chain efficiency yeah. that you can supply folks quickly, close to just in time. So roughly, how long does it take from the potato entering the plant in that railroad car to being on the shelf in a
1: grocery? We can, we can do it and we have done it within 24 hours. So we're going to run an event in the next couple of weeks at, at Safeways, which is called a fresh rush. And uh, within 24 hours, we will have a potato turned into a bag of chips on your shelf. Hopefully somewhere by your check stands and you can see a big little sign that says this, this bag of potatoes, uh, didn't exist 24 hours ago. Can
0: a normal human being taste the difference between that and a six month old bag, a six week old bag?
1: Some human beings. Um, so yeah. So if you're a sommelier and you've been trained in, you know, in tasting, our food scientists can can they have enough experience with with kind of tasting that? I personally absolutely can't. I can't even tell the difference. Like we'll bring back stale product, and you know this is it's fine, this yeah. is vaguely disgusting. But yeah, I will I'll, yeah. I'll sample it every so often. Have some of my folks sample it and be like, you got. And then most of the time we can't even tell. I mean, what do you do
0: with that when you take it off the shelves after six weeks?
1: There's a couple of different things that you can do. Uh, the first is donate to charity. So yeah. we like to do that for for good causes now. The problem is, is sometimes Delicious. you have unscrupulous, you have unscrupulous folks that kind of will go back and resell that ah. to other places, like 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 uh, certain markets that that sell out-of-date products, um, you know, and they'll, they'll truth in it the, these stores will, now we don't do that, but, you know, if we end up sending it to different places, you don't want it showing up, a uh, stale product, because then all of a sudden people think that, oh, we sold that to these, the, yeah. we stole our, and we don't, we don't do that, so um, that's a, that's a problem. The other thing that you do is just, just give it to shelters, you know, like, uh-huh. I mean, if, if you, depending on what our local provisions are, and, and allow us to do that, because this is a legal issue. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then lastly, um, you just destroy it, uh, recycle it. Uh-huh. Send it back to the biomass boiler.
0: Yep. Okay. So it's come out of the. It's in the bag, uh, and now we come to the store. And I. I, I wish we had. Uh, we're about forty-five minutes into this. I, I wish we had another two hours just to talk about the store. Um. What what? Brendan allowed me to do in the store is to see, with a different set of eyes. Uh, part of that's. Part of what you're trying to do in the store is. Uh, based on research about how a lot of it's based on research on how consumers behave and make purchases, and um, I, I think the most obvious thing that's easy to explain is that we all know there's a snack aisle, uh, which in the business is called a—I've learned—is called a gondola, which is the pronunciation in the business, even though that's not the way it's pronounced when it, you're riding in one. <laughs> uh, that that snack aisle is is where, in my mind. If you said where would I find your products? Well, I know where that is. That's the snack aisle. And when I throw a party, that's where I go. Um, but it turns out there's a lot of other places that your products are found in the store. So talk about if you can some of the other places that where they are and what your um uh what you're trying to achieve there.
1: Yeah, so um From our research, we have a couple of things, and I showed you a heat map of kind of what um, we have model stores and test stores with um, thermal scanners where you can see where consumers are located in time, right? So that gives us, that's a competitive advantage to find out where it is. And we noticed that there's a couple of of trends in which... You're not the only retailer. You're not the only producer, though, who's doing that. um, In terms of the salty snack business, uh, we're one of the few that does that. In terms of, like, Coke would probably... You know, do something similar to, I'm sure that they invest in technology now. I will say I think the Pepsi ones are better. Oh, right, no, right, doubt. no doubt about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> even though I'm a diet Coke. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. Thanks, yeah. Russ. I appreciate that. Um, done with podcasting. with yeah, you. it's so, over. Um, it's over. But in terms of, in terms of that, we then look in, and we found that over the past two years, as the macro economy has changed, the heat map of kind of what consumers are doing is, has changed accordingly. Uh, one of things I will say is that, uh, only about 30% of our shoppers, of a store's shopper makes it to the gondola, right? Which means 70% of the traffic flow throughout the, uh, store itself are not making it to our products. So.
0: So I, I gotta say, I gotta interrupt for a sec. So in, in my family, uh, my wife's the primary shopper, but sometimes I'm the shopper. And I have to say that when I'm in a grocery store, partly because I, I actually enjoy it because I don't do it that often. I tend to go up and down every aisle. When I've got, sometimes I have a shop. I usually sometimes I've got a shopping list. My wife has tasked me with the job of picking up seventeen things, and I'm not in the store often enough, really, to know exactly where they are. So my strategy usually is I go up and down every aisle. That's called snaking. Snaking. I'm a snaker, right? And I see some things. Sometimes I bring home some things that aren't on the list because I I'm in the on the aisle with the hot sauce, and I see a brand I haven't tried before, and I get excited about it. But that's not most people,
1: evidently. Right, you which are an is, anomaly. Which is uh, Very rare, like less than maybe 15% okay. of folks that, that are doing that. Most people um, fall into kind of one of two categories. There's significantly more categories than uh, sure this, there but are. just to make it easy, uh, we'll say that there's the perimeter shopper who's a, who's a quick trip shopper that's going in and they're getting what they need, just making one circle around the outside Produce, of the store.
0: Produce, milk,
1: eggs. Pampers. Bread, bread. Yeah. Those kind of things. The basics. And then there's the, the person that has been given Me. the list that has been shopping enough to know where the items on that list are. Uh-huh. So they kind of hub and spoke. They go to those three touch points and then, you know, get out of there as quickly as possible. Most males fall into your category of the... Really? Yeah, oh, of really. the... Not, not the snaking, but the, I'm going to get my list from, you know, go in. Right. I've got a and job accomplish to list, get out. Right. My wife
0: does not do that. My right. wife explores, scavenges, and... Comes home with with,
1: with you know she the provisions, right? Right. What right. she optimizes her shopping
0: trips. No, so. I don't think. No, I think she, she she's in the wild trying to figure out. I, I'd say it differently. I'd say that's the way she goes through the produce and uh, the produce section. She's going to see what looks attractive to her eye, and that's what she's going to make for dinner. She, she is not one of these people. There are people like this. They make their menu in advance. They figure out what they need right. to buy and they go buy it. She doesn't do that. Yeah. She likes to
1: scavenge. Right. So uh, we won't call her a scavenger. Hunter and or we'll gatherer. Her, yeah. She's a hunter
0: and gatherer. Yeah, I call she's her. a yeah, value <laughs>
1: shopper. She figures out what is kind of out there, how she can... And it, yeah, she's going
0: to be price sensitive. And price also. sensitive she's about, say, about what she does. Right? She might have in her mind she's going to get broccoli. It's so expensive this week she's going to switch. She's to not going to do else. that, right? Yeah.
1: So that price sensitivity, has uh, stores have noticed this. So they tend to merchandise a lot of their their price sensitive deals, the reduced prices, coupon events, and stuff like that, to the perimeter of the store. So when you look at where shoppers like her tend to kind of gravitate on that heat map, you can see a big right, big red ring, you know, around the perimeter of the store where she's kind of looking and spending time evaluating deals. So for us, we've noticed that too. So we want more of our deals to be on the perimeter as well. So as we, you and I walked the store today, you could see the different tie-ins that we were trying to merchandise with uh, similar products or somewhat similar products uh, over there while communicating value to the consumer. And I just want to say, there were two things I
0: noticed. Walking well, more than two, but two of the things I noticed that I really had never paid attention to was, first of all, uh, the tie-ins of disparate products. So in my mind, uh, there might be a display of of chips where I'm going to see different your different pieces of your product line, but what you showed me is that a lot of times you're tying in your product line with products of the groceries. Which I've never had not noticed. Mm-hmm, which of mm-hmm. course you don't care what your I wife notice. did though. She might, but she's gonna. You don't really care whether she noticed. You just care whether it affects her behavior. So give me a couple examples of what what we saw. Like uh, we saw the bananas. We walked we walked in the, the first thing we saw. We literally walked in the front door of the store was a, a huge display of bananas at the front of the store, which I never thought about that. You know, why are bananas at the front of the store? And underneath them were chips, sun chips, and I thought. Why are bananas was, I didn't think about it because I never noticed it, but when you pointed out, I thought, yeah, why are those together? So what, right. what's the reason?
1: Well, so uh, oftentimes when we do research with, with consumers, you're trying to, you're trying to parse the consumer into a particular category or subcategory of, of what they're buying. And the person that tends to buy a banana is a healthier, is a healthier consumer. Now, why are bananas prominently displayed? They're a very perishable item. They tend to go away. They rot quickly, right? So a good store will turn its inventory of bananas uh, really quickly, and they'll put them in a prominent display place because it consumers go there to get that. Uh, they don't. People don't hold large inventories of bananas at their homes. Um, they just don't, right? Can't, so, can't. so right. They can't because can't put them in the fridge. You can't put them in the fridge. You can't. You can't do anything with them. You got to eat them then. So well, you can make. Banana bread. You can make that's banana your, bread, fry them, right, right? You know, but but you go, you want to consume that inventory immediately, so that okay. has advantages because it it draws people into the stores if they want fresh fresh bananas. So merchandising our healthier product line, um, beside that, is kind of a natural tie-in. So Sun Chips is is a part that that they've worked well on making it healthier and and you know having it with fiber and that kind of thing. So the consumer of bananas is is more likely to consume a Sun Chip than they are a Dorito. So, when we're trying to get ask for space from the retailer to create these tie-ins, we will come up with pricing strategies. Hey, if you buy a bunch of bananas, get a dollar off on sun chips, bundle that stuff together so that they can trial the sun chips and see if they like them If they do, maybe we'll get lucky and when they come off of a deal on the perimeter location that you saw, they'll go looking for that down in the gondola
0: yeah so that that was another aspect of it that that a lot of times you're putting stuff in in prominent parts of the store that is. Eye candy, decoration, uh, signal to the brain. Chips, chips. So yep. that when you see it the third time, and I or the fifth time, right. I, I didn't realize in, until I walked through with you how many places there are throughout the store, other than the gondola, other than the snack aisle where there are opportunities for you to make an impulse by something that I have an impulse, most of us have an impulse. Most of us have an impulse of nature, yeah. right? So like,
1: yeah, we want to create impressions. And for us, um, you know, we have a bigger sales force than we have a, than we have a marketing force, um, one of the best ways to advertise is directly to the consumers in the store. So if you're coming in the store, I want to create impressions for you that look appealing and have a banner effect, which we talked about uh, when we were out in the store, that kind of draw you, make you look at it, make you study the product and give you a choice of whether you want. The more impressions I give you uh, around the store, the more likely you are to pick, pick something up and see if you want to trial it.
0: So uh, two things about this that are inter- were interesting for me. One is the sign chips were sitting in cardboard boxes that were designed to be appealing right. to the eye it had a flat surface on the top. They were open in the middle for you to take the chips out, the bags. But the top served as the table for the bananas, correct? Which was uh, kind of cool because it's your—you brought that into the store. It's right. not uh, a display thing that that Safeway has,
1: right? So, so we will take that. We we purchase and, and kind of manufacture cardboard as well and that's a prominent display vehicle. So these temporary merchandising displays or TMDs that that you'll see we kind of customize to the individual stores to make sure that they're getting, you know, the things that they want their consumers to buy and then the real estate that they wouldn't normally use that's kind of, you know, the most expensive real estate is the not used real estate in the store. So how do we optimize their real estate? The exp- most expensive real estate is the real estate that's not used. So if you have a, a space in your store that's not being filled with something that can can sell. That's the most expensive place because you're not using it to sell anything. And most retailers are evaluated on sales per square foot. So if you have square footage of your store that you're not selling something out of, um,
0: you mean it's the most. That's that's the most costly. That's the most, to most them, costly to, to them. them right? yeah, yeah.
1: Now you can you can drop over the other side of the curve where your store looks too cluttered, and all of a sudden consumers are like, I, I don't want to walk down this aisle. And Walmart underwent a transition um, about a year or two ago where they kind of they had a clean store policy. So they said, Hey, no more putting in extra vehicles in, in the store because uh, it's confusing our consumers. They're having difficulty walking down the aisle. So they changed the whole behavior of the Walmart sharper hmm. after that. Now, um, you know, there's people in the industry that question whether they overcorrected yeah, or, sure. or or not, you know. But, but it's a um, huge issue because... Right, you want to get the optimal place on the car. Yeah,
0: because, I mean, as a, as a shopper, there's a beautiful feeling when you walk into an uncluttered store, and it's clearly a big transition from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, where stores were were narrow, the, the aisles were much narrower. The carts were smaller. There was a lot of mm-hmm. changes, and it's still true in a lot of urban environments where you walk into a store and it's a very different feel than a suburban grocery store, which has this very expansive uh, cornucopia feel to it. But what we noticed, you know, the end caps, meaning the end of the aisles, um, it used to be there was a display on the end cap. Now there's an end cap on the end cap next to the thing. There's a standing thing. There's a there's a lot more uh, sort of customized individual stuff going on there, right? Right.
1: And so when you look at the at these end caps or any places, we have planograms or schematics, which we've done research on to figure out which are the shelves that move the fastest. And if you merchandise different types of products on the different levels of shelf, what will cause the whole fixture to turn the fastest? So your goal is to use every piece of that real estate to sell off of it. A lot of calories intellectual calories go into evaluating what consumers do when they look at these things. So, you know, we have equipment that looks at at eye movement as to when people are in these test stores, like what are they looking at? What are they thinking at the time? And oftentimes consumers, the, these kind of test consumers that we have will tell you something differently than their body language, meaning what they're looking at is. They don't even know what they're actually not. looking at, which is, which always amazes yeah, me when we, we read the results of that kind yeah. of stuff, you know? So the other tie-in
0: thing I just have to, we have to mention because, um, Never noticed it before, but I'm, I have a ping pong table at home and I, I love playing with my kids. And, um, I get my ping pong balls order off the internet because I like a certain quality and they're a certain kind. They're hard to find. And sometimes you can find them at, um, sports authority or other places. But I noticed this past weekend, I'm out here in California right now. I noticed that there were ping pong balls for sale in the grocery. And the, the way they were for sale is that Um, I'm sure you'll give me the technical name, but what's that thing called? And it's like a, it's a little thing hanging off the, a clip strip. A clip strip. It's sort of hanging off the, uh, shelving. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why. It's weird that that, that that would be, that's where sometimes you find little things that help seal your potato chip bag after you've already used them. Mm -hmm. Sort of those big, what those things are called. Those bag clips. Bag clips. Yeah. Technical term. (laughs) Uh, you might see uh, a certain sponge device that, you know, a cool thing or a, you know, those, there's sort of, again, sort of an impulse thing that, that's just sort of hanging there. So I thought, do What's a weird thing? So I happened, we were looking at, uh, pretzels. An end cap of, of, of Frito-Lay, which was selling rolled gold pretzels. And there was a Safeway employee stocking up these clip strips. And I noticed- well, her, I thought
1: you were going to accost. You were so excited about these ping pong balls. Well, because yeah, you saw her put some- I saw up. her
0: putting some, replacing some of the ones that were gone, and I thought, Oh, that, okay. That's her job, and I asked her who, she, who you thought she worked for. Whether she worked for the ping pong ball company or Safeway, <laughs> and uh, I thought I said, is that weird that they're selling ping pong balls in the in the grocery store? What's the, what is a sporting good item? It's like it's like saying a softball bat. You just don't or baseball glove. Sometimes there's a little recreational area in a in a grocery store where there's like lawn furniture, and then they might have badminton set, but. This was in the snack section. What, what was that about?
1: Yeah, so just to give to give some color. So, so there's this end cap full of pretzels, and then about a foot away from that is a end cap full of beer. Yeah, which I also right? didn't know. So it was sort of behind. It was, it was sort of behind. So the natural tie-in for pretzels and beer is uh, people who drink beer and eat pretzels, and they tend to be some college students. And one of the games that they play is beer pong, right? So some Safeway employee at some point in time had figured out that if I... Merchandise. Probably trial and error. If I merchandise some of the stuff close enough to the beer and the pretzels, people will buy buy uh, ping beer, pong balls to play beer pong.
0: And beer pong, I'm trying to toss a.
1: There's a series of plastic cups um, where each and everyone has their own little variation of it. Not that I'm uh, you would, I, I don't know what this is. Yeah, but However, I've seen, you know, probably. yeah, right? Like, uh, so two people stand at either end of a table and throw a ping pong ball, try and throw a ping pong ball into a partially filled cup of beer. And then, you know, the person who gets the ball thrown into their cup has to consume their, their so, cup of so beer. So, so
0: bocce balls would not be, for <laughs> example. Bocce balls
1: would be an interesting would, way to play But beer it ball. wouldn't be
0: a natural time yet, right. culturally. So, anyway, so we walked, <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, Really, an extraordinary experience to walk around the store and with your eyes and see how product had been placed. First of all, these kind of issues like tie-ins, the issues of height, uh, the care that you guys take in um, height, the care you take in arranging the bags in a certain order that you want. Sometimes you want product at one height versus a different height. You also you also showed me how you're supposed to. Massage the bag. So why do
1: you do that why do you do that? Right. So we have a term called popping and lacing. So when the when the bag comes out of the case, it's just come off of the line, so it's been vacuum sealed and and Russell's able to see kind of the the how the bag gets a little bit uh compacted on that. That's great because when it comes out, there's air at the top and bottom of the bag that protects the chips. But when you put it onto a shelf, you want it to look a little differently. So you slightly massage the bag to pop the bag and, and, you know, get the creases out of it. Yeah. Then what you want to do is you want to lace the bags so that they're, they're overlaying each other. So as people come out they're they're buying in a very particular order without having to feel that they need to reach through the shelf to find, you know, a, a fresher bag because there is no fresher bag. We've put the, you know, the freshest bags where they are. they so they're all there, they're laced nicely and, you know. So you and just want to make it easy for You just want so to make it easy for the consumer it, just yeah, so it. just grab it, grab the top one over there. And if I've laced that stuff up nicely, um, you mentioned the word museum. We don't ever want a store to look like a museum. We want it to look like a, a, a viable place that people can live and shop and that can not live but shop at. Yeah. So this, this kind of makes a nice effect without making it museum-ish, right? So people feel, oh, great, I can, yeah. I can shop this. Help yourself is what it says. So when, say. and when you shop something off of a laced shelf, it still looks like has a nice effect without, you know, destroying the museum. Correct. And unfortunately, when we were in stores, you know, you'll often see carbonated soft drink museums that get put up that have, you know, they, they've used the cases of product to make a picture or something. Correct. Consumers hate to buy from that. They love looking at the picture, but there also needs to be a secondary shoppable area for them because they don't want to destroy the to, museum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. right. So, I mean, sure. you can do suboptimal behaviors in that way. So
0: let's talk about um, how you and the retailer make sure that the shelf's not empty. So, you know, one of the most amazing things, obviously, there's some regularity to demand. You have some idea of the patterns. You know, that I assume people buy more chips for the weekend in anticipation of the weekend. Correct. In football season, they buy more chips generally. Now that the strike's off, the lockout's over, the chip lines are running a little more heavily, I'm sure, in, in Modesto. Um, what's the, how does the information flow and how is it done in a way to minimize cost because uh, you've got to, the last thing you want, going back to the Walter Williams quote at the beginning of the, of the show, the last thing you want is for somebody to look for laced potato chip and not find one. And not
1: find one, right. So, so the primary metric that, that we use is space to sales, right? And do we have enough space in the store to support our sales? So at one level, at the retail level, uh, we'll have a liaison that'll call the key account manager or, or a, or, a national account manager, a CAM or a NAM. And they will, they will have a conversation with, um, the, the retail buyer. And they will say, Hey, uh, we need this much space in order to ensure that you guys don't run, um, out of stock OOS, uh, on a regular basis, week to week. So that's what creates the gondola which is the base level of of uh, product and in yeah. of inventory in the store. And uh, most of your inventory is on the
0: shelf. Is on the shelf. It's not there's some in the back. We did we see all of it when we went in the back? Was you that saw all of it. So yeah, so
1: one of the big not things much. not very much. So one of the things that I've noticed uh, during but, my and time here one
0: of the reasons is is that there's not a lot of room back there. There's not a lot of room the same back there. doesn't want you storing a lot of they stuff. They don't though.
1: want us to store stuff back there, as well as I don't want to leave... Product doesn't sell out of the back room, so one of my big drives is... It, actually, the opposite. Opposite. It, sales and it, it out.
0: And it disappears, and It I I disappears, assume, the shrinkage,
1: so we don't want anything in the back room.
0: Shrinkage so, meaning...
1: Meaning theft, theft yeah. destruction, whatever it is, uh, industry terms. So um, we like to... Given a dollar volume of store sales, we like to have only so much um, product in the back room. Now... I would ideally have zero product in the back room if I could deliver every day to stores, but stores have labor costs too. And I showed you the receiver in the store. They can't man a receiver accepting product or anybody's product through the back door of the store every single day. So the bigger store, the bigger the store is, the more receiving hours they can have and, and more windows. That means less backstop for me, better for everybody. The smaller the store, then I have to have more back stock in order to support the sales that are at the front. So that's the baseline of any retail environment. Then the, there are store level decision makers that have to make decisions for peak volume times. So I think one of the earlier podcasts you did of how, how you know pizzas on the on the Super Bowl you mentioned it done with like Mike Murray biggest Morgan, day of the year, biggest day of the year, and no one ever seems to run out of pizza. Well, we definitely can run out of product at that time. So we have to use that cardboard stuff that you saw uh, our temporary merchandising displays and show the store owner or manager, hey. You are going to sell based on historical data and what our our algorithmic projections are this much product. Your shelf only holds this much. We need to somehow get away to get all this stuff in there. Otherwise, you're going to lose transactions for your consumers. They're going to go someplace else. And like you mentioned with that quote at the very beginning, if you don't have, it's death. like People tend to not come back now. With the rise of of chain-level stores, that behavior happens less and less because you don't tend to leave you know, you might leave your local Safeway, but you'll go to another Safeway. So in the end, Safeway kind of makes out. What's really a f- uh, what's really not good for retailers is if they leave Safeway and don't come back to Safeway. Or for just, any given, give them, they go yeah, to Walmart. And
0: you impose the cost on me of going to another store. I'm not. If that happens
1: more than once, once I'm going to I'm going to learn things. So we, as consultants and salespeople to the local store, try and show them the data so that they can make informed decisions. Um, and you know, we don't we definitely don't want to be bringing in more inventory than the store can sell because the retailers need the cost we do. And any, any type of chip uh, that we sell goes stale. We take that out and give them credit for it. So we're not incentivized to all of a sudden just flood chips to them and you know, hide it or something like and that. And their
0: space, their shelf space is extremely valuable. It's extremely
1: valuable, right? Mm-hmm. So the last thing we want is,
0: is running their,
1: their inventory out of the front room. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? So, and that's how, we, that's how we cope with demand, by trying to, trying to you know, ask, ask for incremental space on the floor for the products that are, that are at significant out-of-stock risk
0: so uh on Super Bowl Sunday or the handful of july fourth labor day labor day yep, memorial, memorial day, day when when there's a lot more barbecuing, a lot yep. more chips, a lot more picnicking parties, et cetera, i assume there there are two things going on one is you are gonna you're gonna serve the customer from every location in that store so there's the chip aisle but if 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 that runs dry if the if the gondola runs dry, i'm gonna be on those other End caps. So I'm going to be constantly. I don't want anything to look empty because that, that looks horrible. Exactly. Which is another interesting thing, by the way. It's not only does the store always have chips, but there's usually chips on display uh, in in perfusion and every other product, of course, as well. But but sometimes there could be a problem.
1: Right. So on those, those special days. Right. So in and the way that we and, co- and, and and
0: one other question: Who is making sure that? The chips are on the shelf. It's your own Frito Lay person, which which we talked about. I think just in passing earlier, but we talked a lot about in the store when we were talking. Um, you you want to make sure your product looks good, it's displayed the way you want it, and it's protected and not beat up. So you've got a person, but that person doesn't work there.
1: And that person doesn't work there, that right? They working, service five or six yeah. stores. So what are they doing?
0: So uh, I guess what are they do in general, and then what are they doing on those busy days?
1: Yeah. So in, in general, we have a we, we do a lot of planning as to say, hey, what what is you know does our supply chain have the right capacity sure. to be able to meet uh, this demand? And generally, it's within the purview of a salesperson to sell for incremental space, so that people above that salesperson don't need to get involved. Um, in terms of the, our type of people, we run a DSD system or direct store delivery system, um, and what that means is we actually bring someone in, they sell the product. They do the work in the store as if you, you, unless they're wearing a different uniform than the store, you wouldn't distinguish them for someone that's merchandising the shelves of the store. And we also employ merchandisers that do nothing that merchandise stores as well as detailers, people that do uh, a sub-level of merchandising. So we have a whole scale of people that come in and service this stuff. Uh, some of our systems have five different people that, that are kind of making sure one store, uh, has, has, yeah, looks good and has what it needs to have. Um, now, the other way that you can get product into a store is through the warehouse system, where a store like like Walmart, Safeway, Lucky's, you name it, um, Stop and Shop, if you're in the Northeast, uh, they have warehouses. They buy their product, and a, a company like P and G will ship that product to their warehouse. Um, then the P and G being partnering part, able, part, part they right. will then um, take that that product either from the warehouse or even from the back door of the store. It gets into the store, and then the store itself is responsible right. for right. merchandising so they run that out, product.
0: They're getting low. They call the warehouse. Right. and Bring me some more. Now, that's we, just in time. In a co- yeah,
1: in a cost cutting environment where the store is trying to make its P and L. Um, Profit loss. Yeah, those are the first people that kind of go, you cut your merchandising hours. So we don't ever want to have to run into that issue. What do you mean you cut your merchandising hours? So the way that you you pay your people so many you know so many hours and the easiest way to to um, make your numbers is to just say hey fewer people work they got to do more. So you that's kind of how people in, in the industry do it. And that's, that's but tougher. what
0: are they going to do less of?
1: You say merchandising, what do you mean? They will look at places, they'll run their own analyses and look at places in the store where product is they have an oversupply of, and they just won't merchandise that area. So if you were to walk snake up and down the aisles, you might see some product that 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 five people every month buy of, but there's it's a canned good, but you know, it can be preserved for six months. So I don't need to fill up that shelf. Uh, with every single can oh, that's by, over so there. So by
0: merchandising, you mean keep Pl- stock to keep the stuck brim, to the all brim the time. on there, right? So it's again, if one of the things that jumped out at me through your eyes is that not only is the uh, are there always bags to be bought, but the display is is flush with stuff, right? So that's a decision you made. To carry more inventory because you think that looks good to the consumer, makes it makes it more appealing because it's costly.
1: It's costly to do this, yeah. right? But it well, a pers-
0: not just in the obviously that there has to be a person to do that, but mm-hmm. also just that you got more products sitting on the shelf not selling. It's turning more slowly.
1: So it, for us, it turn for us. We generally are actually below our level of capacity in the store. We're, I'm much more afraid of out of stocks than I am of of unsalables. Okay, yeah. So sure. yeah. So now for other companies um, that have a higher preserved stuff they pay stocking fees to get the the local store to merchandise their stuff and the store is going to make decisions based on what they do that and we don't ever want to have to ha- have a store make a decision not to merchandise our product so we employ this army of folks to make sure that we have because th- that the the, the 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 thing we're most afraid of is missing a sale Right, yeah, like sure. the, the when you miss a consumer, you never you get miss, them back for that right, moment you miss, in time. Yeah, and you miss whatever sales not, that they don't come back for because they're mad at because they're mad at you or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. So that's the first way, the lowest level that we cope with demand. Um, the second, the the secondary level is uh, when the plant is producing stuff, we will run out of capacity in our distribution centers. Uh, to, this is where cases of product get get customized for individual store. We will back trailers. We have a parking lot, and there will just be trailers and trailers and trailers of product, and we will staff up our our warehousing folks that will come in and, and, and create these orders. So we'll go on a 24-hour cycle at that moment in time. And the way that we have product available is it's coming out of the plant. All the plant lines are on. So at this point, you know, the the, the bottleneck in our operation actually ends up becoming how fast our warehouses can put stuff onto, onto the shelf. Um, now, we still, in peak times, without the ability to get cardboard into Given retailers, we're going to run out of product if they don't give us space to do that. So the the bottleneck of this whole supply chain then becomes the decision making of a local store retailer. Now, some stores get the issue now we're, we tend to be like, you know, the 5th and 6th for a display highest revenue producing item in terms of profit, the number 1 and 2 for a retailer. So some people get this, uh we've shown them the data, they have their own independent data they can corroborate it and they agree we put the stuff up. Some places tend to make decisions really close to the to an hour, right? Like at the, at the holidays. So all of a sudden last minute they say, "Hey, you know, we need you to bring yeah. in. Uh, panic! We're going to run out of stock. And those people, you have to start figuring out how to train them over time, right? So we tell them, hey, we're going to prioritize this, this, and this customer. We're going to give them service because they've partnered with us to get that stuff. That obviously, when when you can't meet demand on those things, that creates an environment where competitors can come in. So you know that's where you see different competitors all of a sudden showing up because, in our opinion, stores made some bad decisions about what they should put up because. You know, they don't have a decision maker that's that's working to meet the demand of their consumer. They don't know their consumers. But then again, that's the I, I blame so it more on my also, Yeah. yeah sure. That's my that's what my salespeople's job is to do, is to convince that guy that they are doing the right thing for the store, and then at the back end show them that he made the decision and it had this consequence on making or, or losing him money. If it's losing him money, it lost money for us. We don't want to do that. If it made him money, it made money for us, let's do it again. But as
0: I th- as I think you said, um the worst thing that can happen. And this is a good thing, meaning that this this is sort of your insurance policy: is you may not on Super Bowl Sunday have every single flavor of every variation, which of course has expanded dramatically over the last twenty years of chip. But you're going to have lots of chips in the store, even on the worst day, right? Right? And you're going to someone's going to have to maybe get a settle for an unruffled. Ridge, unridged chip when they wanted a ridge one. Are they going to send, have to sell for a plain ruffle when they want to ruffle with garlic and onion or whatever, right?
1: Right, exactly. So, um. That's you your, know, backup. Your, your backup. Our backup plan your... is the baseline flavors. And we have, you know, five billion dollar brands that we know we can never have out of stocks in. Then, you know, there's incremental sales that you get by expanding the flavor texture portfolio. So those things we have to just make decisions on and say, hey, we're not going to spend the labor to stock those on peak times. Because someone who's going out to a store on the Super Bowl is probably willing to buy a regular bag of chips rather than... You know, their one of the things favorite. that I learned. Yeah. Their
0: personal favorite. Per- by the way, it's not their favorite. Any, it's, it, it's a party. There's it's 20 a party. people There's there.
1: 20 people so that they, if they're buying for other people, we expect a little bit of grace from the <laughs> consumer. But not very much is given. You know, they get mad that, hey, this thing isn't, isn't out there. So we actually ran into this um, effect uh, over, over the 4th of July holiday. We had made some decisions about what we were able to produce and what we were able to put up there. And we noticed that we had, we had one particular flavor of, of Lay's Honey Barbecue um, that ended up going out of stock. My salespeople... people say
0: out of stock, out of stock. Zero in, in the store. In the West?
1: No, in, no, no. Just in a couple of particular markets where okay. we didn't know there was that kind of demand for that one particular... I don't know if some guy showed up from some other part of the country that right. it was like, we love this stuff, but... An outlier, we call it. A blip, right. yeah. So um, we then went and reviewed all of our schematics and tried to figure out, schematics are the plans that we use to merchandise stuff on the shelves. I mean, the visual layout you yeah. want of what goes where. It's a map, yeah. right? Um, we, we then looked at it and said, how do we make sure that that doesn't happen again for that particular store? And that's called precision merchandising, making a, a very customized map given the demand levels at that one, one particular place. Um, and it was a learning experience, right? We don't ever want ha- to be out of stock on anything. But given certain things, we'd rather be out of the Honey Barbecue Lays than we would of, like, the Lays Classic, right? Because there's a lot more people that are going to be angry at you for that than the one or two people that are going to be angry. And the one or two people might settle for Honey Lays or Barbecue Lays just on Honey Barbecue Lays, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah,
0: they'll, they'll make two. Well, we're going a little late over time, but to me, this is just so interesting. I want to ask you maybe one more or two more things. One of the things that I sense from you in our earlier conversations before we sat down to record this is there's incredible pressure within the organization for constant improvement. Now, Frito-Lay is by far the most successful salty snack, uh, uh, Creator the vendor in, vendor in in the United States maybe the world I assume certainly United States you're doing great but you you conveyed to me that there's relentless pressure for improvement on pretty much every dimension uh, so I think there is a a myth that when you have a lot of you have good market share well you can kind of sit back mm-hmm. so one I want you to talk about whether that's true it doesn't seem to be and um, what do you think the implications of that pressure are for the consumer? There clearly has implications for you, the employee, and the organization. How much of that comes down to the bottom line for the consumer as opposed to the bottom line of, of your company? I see you can't talk to me in specifics, but just in terms of generality. So first, talk about why, tell me about a little bit of the nature of the, com- the competitive pressure that you still feel or that certainly is generated from, from your organization. And then what you think the implications are. And and obviously you're uh you're a you're not a veteran of the industry. You're you're uh
1: you're I'm a veteran of the military. Right. <laughs> not yeah. the chip, the, the, yeah. you're, you're you're I'm in a fight in this. Yeah, uh, you're relatively
0: young. You're uh how long have you been in the business? Uh four and a half, five years. Right. So you, you've learned a lot, but You haven't seen the longer sweep of time that somebody who's 50 or 60 years old Mm -hmm. who would see incredible revolution, really, in in every aspect of this business. But you're getting it even in your own little window. So talk about what's going on there.
1: Yeah, so there's kind of two... As a consumer, we think of things in just the marketplace that you see, the tactile visual marketplace of walking into a store, right? And there you have the competitive pressures of, of fighting for space. And you're kind of saying, hey, what's our incentive to go fight for this? Why don't we just sit back and just, great. hey, we're doing great, got plenty of share, don't need to do anything. Well, there's a secondary marketplace, or really maybe you call it a primary marketplace of, of you know stock price. So there's a consumer of stocks that are out there. And, capital. And, and, of capital. Provider of capital. Right, so Pep- PepsiCo is a publicly traded company, and as such, there are people that are buying our stock and they're trying to make decisions based on whether or not they should buy, sell, or hold, right? And the reason they want to buy our stock is because they expect. Um, you know, its value to appreciate or produces a dividend or, you know, wh- whatever the reason is that they're doing it. But they definitely don't want it to fall in value or any of that stuff. In order for us to increase our value, we have to either sell more chips or cut more of our costs out of the system. So both of those things produce a pressure. And I would stipulate that, you know, the the competition in the marketplace is much more of an obstacle to us rather than, than, that's not the pressure. The pressure comes from trying to grow our stock price from $68.07 to $70. And the way that you do that is that kind of relentless mindset of improvement. How do I take and reinvest my, my resources in this given organization to accomplish the task that we need to accomplish by stripping, by, you know, stripping out non-value added parts, by putting more people on our our more difficult areas. And all that supposedly rolls up to a better result for the buyer of the stock price. So they don't need to know all the things that PepsiCo is doing to optimize its various steps of its supply chain or, or training people to become better sales folks or, you know, they don't need to know that. They just need to know are there more buyers of PepsiCo stock out there today. So all this and this is like Hayekian, right? Like I mean all the the price communicates all this stuff that's out there. And I mean for it's more complicated for us. All of a sudden a Wall Street analyst says that, you know, we need to grow our Wall Street uses a pounds based measure. So they 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 evaluate how many literal pounds of products are on floors of stores. If we don't grow that by a certain amount every year or strip out costs, then our stock price will fall. So that gets translated to a growth target. So all of our sub-CEOs for the various individual businesses of PepsiCo, Frito-Lay, uh, Quaker, Tropicana, Gatorade, the international businesses, they say, hey, you get to have to grow X percent. Then they do a geographic... And you're
0: not board. allowed to call back and say, that's ah, too hard or, <laughs> or that's unrealistic.
1: You're always allowed yeah. an option to call back. I would say that you're probably not going to be working here very much yeah. longer after you make that call. Right. Now, that's a good thing. Like, I mean, I, I say it flippantly, no, but no, I mean, no. like, we're we're here to achieve a target. You know, if if you don't sign up to go and achieve that target, well, you're probably not working in the in the There's another place for you to go. Yeah. Pepsi goes sure. another place for you. No, no. So that target then gets translated down to individual geographies. Hey, we know that the population demography of the West is increasing slightly more quickly than the Northeast or than the Rust Belt. Therefore, you guys are going to have to inherit a little bit more of the target. We might get an eight percent growth target. Uh, the Midwest. Might get a four percent. The Northeast, which is a much more competitive market, gets a three uh, percent. You know, growth target. We then have to figure out how to just go make that growth happen. Um, then there's like a capital allocation process. Hey, each each uh, vice president of of these things gets a certain amount of resources that they can allocate for innovation. Hey, I can give you Russ, if you worked in the West division, X amount more people to go achieve your target because you've showed success in the past. Hey, Northeast, you guys haven't done a lot of stuff. Northeast is great. I came from there. Let me pick on someone that I didn't work for. Hey, Florida, you know, you, you didn't uh, do what you need to do. We're going to take away some resources for you or racking budgets. You know, Hey, we're going to give you more money for putting racks into stores and grow the market. So without going to specifics,
0: we, we, we saw some things today that that you were not 100% happy with in the store, right? You said, Joe, we could do that better. Let me show you how this is the ideal. Obviously, you can always improve that. It's it's the equivalent of, of waste, fraud, and abuse in government spending. Right. Obviously, on the ground, in any one store, you can execute. You know, think of it as a sports analogy. You can block and tackle better. Yep. But adding the optical scanner, a quantum leap, right? A lot of the change is going to come that way Right and
1: step function changes. Yeah,
0: and that's coming really from everywhere. It's it's from the, the the supplier of that product who comes to your CEO and says, "Hey, I've got a new way for you to improve your quality." It comes from your people on the line at your factory saying, "I wonder if we could find a better way to." I mean, there's all kinds of unspecified stuff yeah. going on. It, it almost, really, it, I'm going to call it serendipitous. It's it's not literally unplanned. It's not. But it's a little bit different than you saying, how am I going to sell 5% more of, you know. It, it, it's and it, and it could include, for example, today we saw lots of, of creative use of cardboard. That wasn't there, again, 25, 30 years ago probably. Somebody in your organization had a, a light bulb moment or somebody in the cardboard world had a light bulb moment. And so all this is really going on at once,
1: Yeah. Right? So you definitely don't want to stifle. everyone. What I've noticed having run uh, this part of this organization is there are hundreds of light bulbs that go on and you can't stifle them because the best innovation comes from um, your frontline generally. The people that, that that are experts in what they do, they're going to the ones that have the raw years and years of experience that know how to do something better. There's a saying in the military, uh, amateurs study tactics, professional study logistics. I'd love to add, you know, entrepreneurs study problems and innovation, right? And when you get those step function changes, entrepreneurs can capitalize on on on. You know, changing the way that you completely do things. Um, How much of that comes though from
0: your? from a, literally as like a suggestion of a salesperson on the floor who says, you know, I think we could do this better. Yeah.
1: Right? Oftentimes, I'd say like a, a lot of our incremental in, innovation happens that way. Hey, you know, there's there's a better way to merchandise the shelf. There's a tactic, technique, or procedure that you can employ to make your thing better. The optical scanner is where we know we have a problem. We don't know what the solution is. Get a team of of people on there and figure it out. And that thing was, you know, someone saying, hey, you know what? We can take a picture of this thing on this, supp- someone who would studied supply chains over and over and over. Over. We can take a picture of this, we can add an air pump to it, and you know, all of a sudden combine those two technologies in a way that didn't exist before. People who are really good at optical imaging or air pump stuff will never put those, they might, they won't put that together. It's the guy that's looking at the suppl- the, the, the thing over and over and over that's reading, that has enough randomness of information coming into his thought process or her thought process uh, will will recombine that stuff in a new way. But sometimes it's that person's the worst, the last person to innovate. That's that true too. That person's
0: totally focused on this is the only how way. do I get Lucille Ball to not fall behind? And, and I don't right. ever imagine.
1: And that's right? the Henry Ford quote, right? Like if I asked my consumers what they wanted, they'd say a better horse, you know, rather than a car. Right. So, you know, we're always trying to go out and, and figure out, it's hard to say, it's really hard to get an organization to say, how can you do this without a conveyor belt? You know, but I think I mean, as as leaders, you, you ha- great leaders will come in and they will, I mean, like when I was in... And this is this has less to do with with Frito Lay and more to do with the military. When I was in the military, we were given problems that just were unsolvable given the resources that we had at hand. So hey, you need to go and hold this piece of territory north of Kirkuk, and by the way, you have sixty guys to hold three hundred square miles. You know, can't be done. Can't be done, right? Okay, great. You still have to go do it. You know, yeah, so you yeah, don't get to say.
0: Uh, I, I disagree. Right. So uh,
1: had phenomenal <laughs> leaders who, who kind of came in and said, "Hey, guess what? We're going to have to partner up with, with local, with the local, with the local piece." And even though there then you were directives, figure out
0: how to do that? Yeah. That's then you got to figure out how
1: to do that. But that was a way, a vehicle of going in and solving the problem. Or you want to take a census of of you know the local amount of population of of who's there. Hey, inventory how many people come to the local watering hole, and then you get to know who are the locals that are there because they have to get their water from someplace. So, you know, necessity is the mother of all yeah, invention. Sure. You know. Um, but I think great leadership can either stifle or enhance the light bulbs. And, and if you're out surveying and kind of getting a a bird's eye view of, of where the good ideas are coming from, then that reinvention can take place. But it's hard to do. It's the hardest thing that I think any, the hardest thing for any, Clay Christensen wrote a lot about this, uh, you know, in the innovator solution and dilemma. Um, how do you, how do you disrupt yourself while retaining your, your part of the marketplace? Yeah. And that was a
0: phrase you used numerous times in our conversation, uh, in the store was, was using, the phrase disrupt as a positive, right? right? The goal is to shake up I want to do that.
1: And I, I will plan disruptions with my team and they, they it drives them crazy where I'll take away people from them. Hey, go go do your job today with fewer people just to see what they do. Because all of a sudden guys will figure out how to do more with less and you have to do that at times to you have to self disrupt in anything in life too, right? Like I mean that's how For you sure. I mean other yeah. That's how you get better.
0: Okay, last question. Um your industry has changed a great deal over the last 25 years, 50 years. We've talked about it. What do you think's coming? What do you think is, is that you could talk about? Obviously, you probably have some proprietary things that you can't talk about. But what do you think, obviously, one of the most dramatic things that's changed is the role of technology and credible computerization and, and application technology in every aspect of the business, right? Yeah. We, we talked about the, the process, it's the, the manufacturing process, but... The stocking process, every single aspect, this, this model store, the use of scanners, or where people's eyes go—I mean, just as opposed to just like interviewing a few consumers and saying, "What flavors do you like?" Yeah. So all that's changed a lot. Anything else you see coming
1: that's dramatic? For now, your question was for my industry, for PepsiCo in particular.
0: That's about the industry.
1: Um, so we, we work in a, the food industry. we work working a, a food vending vending service. Um, A lot of it is just supply chain optimization, right? How do you, how do you figure out how to own a product from its nascence to its, you know, its sale? Speaking of which, do you,
0: where do you get your potatoes from?
1: Uh, we have patented potatoes that we sell, we give the recipes to local farmers, uh, and then they grow them locally. So all of our, all of our product actually comes from the local geography. Really? Uh, yeah, we, we definitely try and optimize around that because the cost of transporting, um, Raw raw things that you're going to kind of cut up and and reduce right. makes doesn't make a lot of sense to be shipping it across the country. Because you value added, you're
0: shipping water. We're shipping because, water, right. right? Which
1: is exp- heavy and expensive. You'd much rather ship so, ships. So yeah. So we're actually one of the biggest employers or, or buyers of of local. Now to hedge bets on certain things, you yeah. want to have your own field, So we do have that also. Oh, you do. You have yep. both. Yeah, yep, we have both. But for the most part, it's it's by local consumers. And then you know, there's hedging stuff that they do that that our our CFOs do to buy stuff on local on. Natural, in national natural markets natural, in yeah, case, yeah, yeah that's sure. what happens. But um, going back to your question of where do I see the, uh, the industry going, um, there's much more, you know, I showed you, you some of the, the looks of how consumer behavior has changed. I see a lot of, of stores that are having to find much more niche for an on-demand lifestyle that, that we've, we've become an on-demand culture. Uh, I expect if I want to listen to your podcast, uh, I'm not going and downloading it on iTunes. I'm going to like Google Listen or something like that, and I'm downloading it about a minute and a half before I listen to it. As I plug it into my vehicle, uh, w- you know, which will play it through through the local radio, the you're local speaker system.
0: Certainly not downloading it. Although many people are, mm-hmm. you're not downloading it onto a desktop, no. burning a CD, carrying it, with, which would be another way you could do it. People do, but you could do it that way. We're moving toward. Basically, it would go right in your ear. Correct. Uh, I would just, you just, somehow I'd get you that chip in your ear to just, you just think about it and it would play it. And that's an impulse buy,
1: right? Like, or an impulse listen, whatever you want to call it. Sure. And the, the technology leaders of the, of I think our society have shown us that there's a significant demand. And now consumers are expecting more and more of this on-demand immediacy everywhere we go. Yeah. So how do we sure. get better at at, full, at fulfilling the need for consumer immediacy of what I want right now? Give it, give it to me, or I'll be mad and never, never come back to you. Um, and what I think uh, now, do I know what the outcome of? I think that's the need, so I can structure Agreed. that in terms of, of what the need is in terms of the outcome. We have to be able to capture, uh, consumers wherever they are, whenever they are. So how do we get on-demand vending machines that'll have the right products th- that they want? If you want to order, you know, a bag of chips to you immediately, can I create a, a, a system of, of being able to deliver that stuff to your door personally if, if you want that in a cost-effective way? Um, if you want, if you want a, a part of the supply chain where you can Turn a potato in your local store into a chip flavor with our stuff. How do I build a machine in that local store that will say, "Hey, we can charge you five bucks, and you can take these three potatoes and make a customizable bag of chips that you did your own fresh rush in, you know, right now." Um, so I think I think that that's how the industry needs to respond to what what is changing for folks. And then the other piece is how does the industry becomes, become come much better at. at um, at running the vast amount of data that we have now before your data used to be, we were out of stock or you weren't, it was binary. Now it's like, did you optimize for all the shelves you have? Did you optimize for the square footage? Where's the most valuable real estate within the store? Did your supply chain ship the right, right products and, and having, there's going to be many more consultants that'll have to explain how all the intricacies of this stuff work to local vendors. And then how do we partner up with uh, people to do? Cause I think that we can do more than just sell chips. I think we could go in and run different aspects. This DSD system, there are certain products that this is really good for. How do DSD is... We direct again. store delivery. How yeah. do we take our army of folks and say, this army of folks can do more than just sell chips. They can also gather information about a store. That information is valuable to people. How do I sell that to people? Like We talked about an entrepreneur friend of mine who is trying to solve that problem right now. So there's all sorts of things that the industry has to change, and they have to cope with the amount of data that's coming across and communicate it in in, in an understandable way. To um, their partners. Does that
0: answer that question?
1: You bet. Okay.
0: <laughs> My guest today has been Brendan Donahoe. Brendan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Russ, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.